Welcome back to the latest Green Section podcast series. I'm the host, Adam Miller. We've got a really exciting episode today talking with Damon DiGiorgio, golf course superintendent at Cabot St. Lucia. We talked about the amazing site for golf and a little bit about the routing that Bill Core and Ben Crenshaw created, but mainly focused on the growing and some of the unique challenges of the project, like dealing with severe erosion issues and really rocky soils uh, and sand capping with a local pumice sand that doesn't exactly drain well, all the way down to trying to see Seashore Pass Palum during their rainy season and of course uh, had above average rainfall for their rainy season. It was cool to hear how Damon and his team have overcome these issues as they get closer to opening for preview play in late March and the grand opening December 1st. Damon, it's been a while since we last talked, and you know, thanks for coming on the podcast, really. Before we get started to talk about uh, Cabot St. Lucia, I've got to ask about your dog, Pinky. You know, from what I've seen, Pinky's really living the dream life for a dog, getting to run around uh, a golf course on an island paradise. Um, the Instagram posts you have with her running on the course with a cool song playing in the background are just, just makes my day. So wh- when did you get Pinky, and is she more well-known on property than you are? <laughs> Thanks, Adam. Yes, she's definitely more well-known than me. I would not say everybody knows my name, but they always know Pinky's name. I'm more or less referred to as Pinky's dad. Uh, I, I originally got her in the Dominican Republic when I was living in Punta Cana. At the time, um, my girlfriend saw Pinky as a puppy and she just had to have her. So she got her, named her Pinky after the MTV cartoon, Pinky in the Brain. And <clears throat> she did not speak English very well. So she actually named, spelled Pinky P-I-N-K-I. And we broke up about a year later. I did not want a four pound dog named Pinky, but I ended up with her. And we've been inseparable ever since. It's pretty, pretty funny how those things work out. She's been all around the world with me from twice in the Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, St. Lucia, Delaware. She's uh, met a lot of famous people and uh, she's very well known. That's awesome. It's uh, no, no real easy transition going from uh, talking to uh, talking about your dog to uh, to Cabot, but let's get let's get into it. So you you mentioned Delaware, you mentioned Dominican Republic. You didn't end up at St. Lucia really by chance. Obviously, you've got previous experience uh, with uh, managing golf courses in the Caribbean. So you were kind of an ideal choice to head up the growing and maintenance at Point Hardy, which is the the golf course at Cabot St. Lucia. So tell us a bit about your career journey as a golf course superintendent. Sure, Adam. I'm originally from Maryland, between Baltimore and Washington, arguably the hardest place to grow grass. Uh, When I was 16 years old, I started working on a golf course, and I've actually never worked anywhere but on a golf course since. Uh, I chose to go to North Carolina State University for the turf grass program. I did some awesome internships uh, for two USGA Green Section Award winners, uh, George Thompson at the Country Club of North Carolina, and David Stone at the honors course. And I chose them, um, those courses, not just because of the reputations, but because of those two gentlemen and just how well known they are in the industry and how much they will, they were able to teach. So from there, I um, actually moved to California for a little bit. I got a call from a contractor who was building a Nick Faldo design course in Punta Cana, Dominican Republic, asked me to go down there as a construction superintendent and 
when they were beginning to transition into the growing, they asked me to stay on as the uh, superintendent. So that was kind of my first uh, time in the Caribbean. And then I was with Troom Golf at the time. Uh, they moved me to Puerto Rico for a year, then Delaware for about six years. Finally went to back to the Dominican Republic to apply Grande for the Discovery Land Company about six years ago. And then Ben Callum Dewar, who's the co-founder and executive chairman of Cabot, and I had known each other for several years and he had Point Hardy Golf Club being built and he asked me if I wanted to join and I did. It's been a wonderful opportunity for me, for a great company. What's the origin of Cabot St. Lucia? You, you mentioned the, uh, the founder there. Um, where exactly is uh, St. Lucia in the Caribbean and what's the backstory with, with sort of how the golf course came about? Well, St. Lucia is located in the Eastern Caribbean. We are just north of St. Vincent and the Grenadines and just south of the island of Martinique, uh, roughly 500 or so miles north of Venezuela. So pretty far south. I want to say seven years ago, Ben Calendor was looking at different properties to buy and develop. And he came to St. Lucia. Uh, the golf course is located on the northeastern part of the island. Island's roughly 28 miles long by 10 to 12 miles wide. And when he saw the site, he just knew that there was nothing like it. He had worked with Bill and Ben at Cabot Cliffs, as you said, they did an awesome job there, number one course in Canada. It's different There's, than Cliffs, but similar in the elevation changes, the, the topography, the coastal environment, and they both play along the ocean. Probably a little bit more topography change here, but they knew that they could make it work with what they did to Cliffs. So it's been really exciting to work with them and anybody you'll talk to just loves working with Corn Crenshaw. They're such wonderful human beings. And they do such a great job of really creating some awesome, awesome properties on some difficult sites. And your description of, of the property, I don't think anyone can do a, a great description because it's so dramatic. I mean, the pictures just seem like it, it's one of the most picturesque places in the world for a golf course. You know, from an agronomic standpoint, what kind of challenges did the terrain really present during the initial construction and shaping of the property? So we have nine green sites on the ocean itself. And in all reality, this is likely the best site left on the planet for great golf. It truly is. <laughs> there's, there's not many pieces of property like this. There's a lot of challenges with the slopes. Uh, we started grassing in June of last year, which is right when the rainy season starts. So all that elevation really makes it hard during the rainy season to keep, um, keep the grass in, in place until it's established. If you're getting rains every two to three weeks of two inches, three inches, four inches, five inches at a time, it's very, very hard to get established. So we, we've grassed, Probably the first 12 holes, approximately, we grass maybe three or four times, seemingly. Cora and Crenshaw has had two wonderful design associates out here, Keith Reb and Trevor Dormer. Trevor Dormer jokes that he used to really enjoy rain, but now when he hears rain, he, we all kind of freak out, look at our phones, check the weather station, check the radar, because after a, a five inch rainfall, when you're grassing a golf course, it's, it's pretty ugly. And to do things three and four times while we've gotten very good at it, it's still frustrating at times. Yeah, definitely. You know, just having conversations with you earlier about the erosion challenges sounds pretty severe. And you guys get north of, you know, north of 50, 55 inches of rain, maybe even 60 in that June through December rainy season. So uh, definitely had your hands full, I'm sure. 
Let's talk about some of the tactics that you did use to mitigate the erosion challenges, like some of the makeshift erosion control systems used to manage surface water until the grass was established. Looked pretty interesting. So can you go into some of those? We ha are using uh, matting, EnviroNet matting, which helps a lot. It is quite expensive and it does take about a month to get here from the plant in North Carolina. Uh, Trev Dormer and Juan Reyes, uh, who works with the contractor, came up with uh, this in, uh, ingenious idea to actually use above ground pipe to force the water to go into the, the drains. So we take half inch plywood, we cut it, maybe about six inches tall and the length varies, maybe 10, 12, 20 feet. And so if you can imagine the two pieces of plywood are in a V formation with above ground four, six inch drainage pipe. And then around the drainage pipe, we actually use that expanding foam so that it fits in there tight. And we actually force the water into the pipe, which then goes into one of our drains. It works. It's not perfect as you can imagine. If, if you don't maintain it, there is a tendency for the water to go below and around the pipe or the boards, but it's worked well for us overall. And it has certainly helped us get through this rainy season. This past rainy season, as you mentioned, we had 60 inches of rain from June 1st to December. That is very rare here. It is the rainy season, but it was the worst rainy season in 20 or 30 years, which is going to happen when you're building a golf course. It's always got to be the worst. It's got to be that time frame, right when you get yeah, right when you get seed or sprigs or something on the ground, you got to get a bunch of rain. Yeah, and and we use silt fence, uh, V ditches above the holes, anything uh, anybody could come up with. Uh, no matter who thought of the idea, we tried it just to get this 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 the grass established and, and going so we wouldn't have to redo everything every time. So you described it as one of the best places on the planet remaining to to have a golf course. Underneath the, the turf that you have, I mean, there's some, some pretty rocky soils that really didn't seem suitable uh, to grow some good grass on. Um, and you couldn't really ship in sand from, you know, when you're given the cost of that. So you elected to do a sand cap with sort of a local pumice sand. Um, where'd you get that exactly? And can you describe some of the physical characteristics of, of that pumice sand and like, like the infiltration rate? Sure. The pumice sand comes from a quarry in the middle of the island and it's trucked up here. It takes about, depending on traffic, even though it's only 14 miles away, it takes probably about an hour to get up here in these trucks. And we've used quite a bit of it, uh, because of all the washouts. The characteristics is that even though it's called a sand, it actually, the infiltration rate is actually less than 0.1 inches per hour. The air pore space is between three and 6%. The uh, uh, coefficient uniformity is over 11. It's pretty interesting stuff, needless <laughs> to say. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, well, here's what I'll, I'll tell you. It, on paper, it looks terrible. It's rock hard, it doesn't drain. But I remember going back to what my dad said, you know, my dad's a, a retired government worker, you know, growing up in the middle of Maryland and, and arguably one of the hardest places to grow grass. And he would tell me, look, Damon, I can grow grass in the cracks of my asphalt driveway. So why do you need to go to college for four years to study turf grass? So you make it happen. Just because it's bad on paper, you use all the skills you have, you get help from whoever you can. And you make it happen. 
I'm guessing the listeners would think, you know, with such a, a slow infiltration rate, what about the pumice sand actually made it better than just using the, the native soil? Was the native soil just that bad? Yeah, the native soil is actually pretty rocky. And we actually have sodium levels. We're using Paspalum, which is certainly a, a salt tolerant grass. But some of the sodium levels in our subsoils are over 2,000 parts per million. It's pretty wow. incredible. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, actually 4,000. Actually, I'm looking at some tests right now. We actually have one soil sample I took that's 4,600 parts per million, and that's the subsoil. Knowing the infiltration rate was was slow, you really focused more on the the uh, surface drainage. But did you have any subsurface drainage, any pipe installed, you know, under, underneath this this pumice sand? So the idea for originally uh, in speaking with Bill Core was that there was going to be no drainage at all no cash basins at all. In the end, we ended up putting some cash basins in, very little. But the idea is for the ball to play, for the golfer to play the course firm and fast and let the ball move. So there's very little drainage. There are several cash basins, but not that many. What about under greens? Do you have pipe under the greens? Nope, not one single pipe underneath the green. Wow, oh, okay. So let's let's keep going a little bit on the pumice sand. I guess you, you went roughly four inches or so cap in most places, but then 12 to 18 inches um, beneath the grains. So what kind of tests or how did you settle out on the different depths uh, for the sand cap? Not as scientific as you might think. Working with Corn Crenshaw, they don't, they prefer not to be limited by a, a particular greens mix because they will expand and shrink greens as they, as they see, as they build. So it was more of just needing that much sand so that they can work the, the slopes on the greens themselves, uh, as opposed, I know we all think about doing all this testing and what it means, but it came down to design really, and making sure it, we can get what they want. Let's, let's sort of switch gears a little bit and touch on the irrigation system. You mentioned you planted C-sharp past palum, which, I mean, we know it's got a salinity tolerance of more than 10 decicentimeters per meter squared, but even past palum, you know, seawater isn't, direct seawater isn't a viable option for irrigating the course. So you're using a reverse osmosis system to desalinate the water, and that can come with its own challenges. Um, you know, have you experienced any, any of those challenges with irrigating with turf that really is, is treated with reverse osmosis and very clean? I've heard a number of agronomic challenges associated with that water type being so clean and, and even potentially damage the irrigation system. So have you seen anything yet with the, the desalinized, uh, you know, reverse osmosis water? The first thing is actually weeds, uh, with Paspalum and my experience with Paspalum, you actually want a bit of a dirty water and it actually helps with the, the weed control as funny as that sounds. Uh, so far we're in growing, we have about three and a half more holes left to grass. So we haven't, hasn't been long enough for us to see any of the challenges of the clean water that we're hoping to eventually hook into the local wastewater treatment plant and then have our own wastewater treatment plant on site to really dirty the water up a little bit, which will really help. Yeah. So you'd be like blending the RO water with that, that wastewater. Correct. That's yeah, that's the goal. Uh, but you're right. Long-term it's hard to predict what will happen. We're so focused on just getting the place grown in right now and open. I, it's something that, that's 
on my mind, but it's not at the front of my mind just because we don't know exactly what the wastewater, the quality of the wastewater that we'll be getting, how much it needs to be mixed, so on and so forth. We're just we're just happy to have water to, to grow the course in. That's a process in itself. I guess now combining what we had talked about earlier with uh, the slow infiltration rate of the pumice sand uh, combined with the irrigation water and, and you mentioned the amount of sodium buildup that you already have in some of those native soils. So what's your plan to kind of address those issues or are you still working that out? Is it, but does it look like, you know, through aeration, through, through gypsum applications or other cultural practices? How do you see that all working? So yes, a lot of solid timing is my plan initially. Solid time, solid time, solid time. The gravel in the pumice sand is between eight and 20%. So I decided against hollow tining at this time because I didn't want to bring all that gravel up and then it messes with the mowers and whatnot. So a lot of solid tining right now, possibly uh, dry jacked or, or similar to help it as well. It's basically if we get the gravel out and use that sand, something similar, that would be be good. Gypsum's interesting that you said that. I. You know, you're, you're taught in school about, you know, gypsum is, is a two plus ion and it knocks off sodium, which is a one plus. And then I did read some research from Pace Turf saying that just flushing will help as well, if not as good, maybe better than with gypsum. So I'm not sure. I'm going to have to do some of my own on site testing to see how that works out. Some before and after, maybe some, you know, I'll do some, some areas with gypsum, some areas without it's hard to flush with this type of soil. So right now I'm just focused on, on solid tining. And, and then once we finish growing, doing some experimentation. We've touched on used uh, seashore pastbellum, specifically uh, Pure Dynasty was the, uh, the cultivar. And that's really wall to wall. So I think it might be interesting for our listeners to kind of hear the backstory of your decision around seeding versus sprigging, or I guess the decision around seeding versus sprigging. So the first golf course I worked at in Punta Cana, the Nick Fowler design course, Roco Key, we actually imported in sprigs from Georgia. It's a very, very difficult process. The authorities from the, uh, from the Dominican Republic had to travel to the sod farm in Georgia, watch as they actually wash the sprigs to make sure there's no soil on it. And then when you ship it, you ship it in refrigerated containers, you set up your own nursery, the nursery has to be inspected by the the uh, turf grass producer several times. It's it's a very difficult process, and then the nursery has to be regrown, and you keep going. So at Playa Grande, uh, which I was at from 2017 to about a year ago, the Pure Dynasty was chosen because you could just import it, didn't have nearly as many restrictions and you can just seed it right away without needing the extra land for the nursery. So same thing here in St. Lucia, just not needing the extra land for a nursery and being able to grass directly was a huge, was really the decision maker right there. And plus Pure Dynasty is so much different than the older seeded Paspalum, so much better. I, I believe it was Sea Dwarf maybe in the early 2000s, I could be wrong, mid 2000s. The characteristics are so much better now than what the earlier seeded varieties were like. What were some of the planting methods, you know, seeding methods specifically that you use to minimize the erosion outside of some of the erosion, you know, kind of structures that you, you built? 
um, to get that seed established as quick as possible? Because of the slopes, we, we hydro seeded. So different types of mulch were used. We uh, settled on predominantly Flexterra, which is a high quality mulch, at least for the slopes to help it stay on. Uh, we did some experimentations, um, a young turf grass professional that works for the contractor, Scott Powers, and I did some experiments with rolling as soon as we were done to determine when the ideal time was to roll, you know, a day after it was grassed, right after it was grassed, a couple hours. So we did some experimentation on that and we really saw a difference in rolling as soon as you could. So basically we let it dry so that the roller the mulch would not stick on the roller and that gave us the, the best and fastest germination. So between rolling and matting and the above ground drainage and uh, a good pre-plant, we, we got it pretty dialed in now where we can get to approximately 80% establishment in three to four weeks. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's quick for knowing, knowing the, the visuals of the site and the rain that's that you've got to be pretty pleased with that. Yeah, we're really in a groove now. It didn't start off like that, but we've, we've learned. <laughs> yeah. We've yeah. learned, done some experimentation, and and uh, we're getting better at it. So with three and a half holes to go, we're, we're ready to get this thing finished. What are some of the specific things that you're thinking about with respect to that grass interacting with the pumice sand with the limited infiltration rates? There's a really good group of turf grass professionals that I lean on. Jay Miller, who used to be at Baker's Bay in the Bahamas, now in Costa Rica. John Riley, who we all know from Twitter, Turf Monkey in, in Florida. There's, there's a good group of, of professionals that we kind of rely on each other. And what I found with the greens in particular and green speeds and smoothness is to try and groom as much as you can to get out the thicker leaf blades is something that I've really found that works for us. A lot, a lot of experimentation with growth regulators. Uh, once we get going here, we're still growing, but but I found that a mixture of Primo and a new works best for us to try and, as we measure the clippings, try and get as few clippings as possible uh, using those growth regulators and only using nitrogen when you have to. And we were actually at, at Playa Grande, I mean, we were tracking everyday clippings, growth regulator, firmness, speed, moisture, rainfall, trying to get some type of uh, corresponding figures. It, it, it was counterintuitive at times. You would think, you know, with more rain, it would be softer or more grass would be slower, but it didn't always work out that way. But we did see trends as we did our measurements that the less grass we were mowing, the faster and the smoother the ball roll was. And same with firmness as well. So I say you really want to do whatever you can to get the leaf blades as thin as possible. There's a, um, a tool from True Surface, the groomer, it actually has like bent blades on it and it does a really good job for us picking out the, the thicker blades on the turf and verticutting, top dressing. It, it's, it's a bit of a feel, really. I mean, it's, it takes a while and you gotta collect the data, in my opinion. You know, in your experience with the pumice sand and the limited infiltration so far, 
you know, how does that look from a, a fertility perspective, you know, compared to what maybe you've, you've had experience with in the past? I mean, is that something that you've looked at changing up or you're still just in growing and you'll, you'll taper things back as, as you see fit when, when the time's right? Yeah, right now we're still in growing. I mean, from my experience, uh, some of my errors where we, we learned the most from, I, I was doing an all sulfate based um, fertility program. It was just kind of making the leaves really dark. So I've switched out to some more liquid fertilizer, which I feel helps. Here, the pumice sand's not too bad fertility wise. It can be low in phosphorus. So we're putting a, a 1152 out you know, pre-plant and as we get through the, the grow-in, and I believe we'll test it again, but I believe once we get through growing, it should have enough phosphorus to last a while. Otherwise, fertility-wise, yeah, we're just kind of, you know, laying the calcium nitrate to it right now, and then we'll we'll back off after growing. But from my experience at Playa Grande, it's just spoon feeding. We really didn't use slow release on the greens. We did do slow release on the fairways, but just trying to get it, um, as green as possible without uh, making it the, the leaf texture thick. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about pest control now with uh, with the with the pest pelum. You know, there's there's from what I've learned, you know, there's some limitations with the products that you can use just on the island. So, what are some of the biggest concerns as far as disease, insects, and weeds? Uh, and then, you know, what are some of the hurdles that you have to try to go through to uh, to overcome those, you know, just getting certain products that we're accustomed to uh, to having in the States? Sure. So armyworms are a huge deal. I mean, they don't necessarily kill the plant, but they certainly set it back, especially during growing. And you have to stay on top of it right away. So I kind of knew that coming in. So one of the first, very early on, I worked with uh, Dr. Rick Brandenburg from NC State, good friend of mine. And we came up with a, a plan to get the local uh, pesticide board to approve a celeprin, which we all know is a very effective, a very, very safe product that has never been used on the island. So he helped me put together some information to go to the board and say, look, this is a, a new product. It's safe. It's long lasting. It's something we're going to need. Uh, I, I knew that coming in. So we, we stayed on top of it pretty good. But armyworms are, and grubs overall are a our biggest insect challenges. Disease, um, I have this, because it's a windy site, we're pretty good. Uh, at Playa Grande, we actually would get dollar spot in areas and some take all root rot. But so far here, because of the wind, everything stays really dry for the most, unless it's raining, of course. And weeds, we have the regular crabgrass, goosegrass. We'll get in on a uh, pre emergent program here pretty soon, probably three or four months after the turf is established, we'll get on a, uh, a Ron star program, mix with some slow release to help with that. You mentioned earlier the you know, the, the saltier water, it kind of helps with, with weeds. And I remember an article that Larry Gilhuli wrote years ago, talking about, um, you know, applying salt to help control post-emergent, uh, goosegrass. Is that something that you've, you've ever done, or is that maybe more challenged than, than the way Larry described it? <laughs> No, no, we have, we've tried it all, different types of salt, you know, uh, everything. And, and it does work. It does work. But the person applying it has to be really good, believe it or yeah, not. Yeah, I bet. Uh, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, they have to be, be really good at it. Um, I will say Bill Core and Crenshaw are really interesting. They, they do not want the course to be perfect. 
Um, I, I spend a lot of time communicating with a uh, fellow NC State alumni, Casey Koff at Trinity Forest, and which is also a core crenshaw design. And it's not, you know, the edges are meant to be rough. It's not meant to be completely weed free. Obviously the greens are, but they like that, that look that not, the not emerald green look. I mean, Bill Core tells me all the time, says, Damon, we do not want this place to be, you know, perfect. We want that rough edge. So it's okay to have weeds along the edges. It's, it's not a big deal with, to see that with the architects here. And it, and it makes it a really cool look. I mean, if, if you see, I know Trinity Forest has held several PGA tournaments. I believe they're actually going to be hosting some USGA tournaments in the future. If you see it on TV, it's got a really neat look to it. And it plays firm and fast. And you can really tell what Corn Crenshaw are looking for. Yeah, that's exciting when you hear those guys, you know, really express that that sentiment. It does need to trickle down into the, you know, the end consumer. And that's that's something that we're obviously focused on with the USGA. What, talk to me, was was Port Hardy, where was that in relation to when they did, when Corin Crenshaw did uh, Brambles? Because I think that's a, a big thing that they're pushing there as well, that this should have this, you know, as you get further offline, it becomes more and more of just what you see is what you get, you know, reduced maintenance on the edges. Yeah, I believe, uh, so Point Hardy started three years ago. Uh, of course, of COVID, it, it slowed down quite a bit uh, during that time. But I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Brambles just finished up a few months ago. So pretty much at the same time, you're correct. I, I'm curious really about like the bunker sand. Like what, what did you end up doing there? Did you import bunker sand from the U.S. or did you find something that was, was local? Because that's obviously got to be a huge, huge price tag if you're bringing that in from, from the mainland. Yeah, so it's funny you said that. The bunker sand, uh, it took us a while to find the correct bunker sand. We ended up doing one a, a trial where you know we laid out five or six different bunker sands in one bunker. And, and actually, not different bunker sands, but sand... Uh, from Guyana, which is a country uh, in South America next to Venezuela, and local sand. And we kind of did like 100% sand from Guyana, 95.5, 90.10, so on and so forth to see what worked out best. And we ended up going out with 100% Guyana sand. On the Munsell color chart, it's actually considered light gray, um, as Corn Crenshaw do not want the bright white look out here. So it, it comes in, it's used actually, the sand is actually used for concrete. So it actually comes over in barges, um, you know, 2000 tons minimum at a time and different construction companies keep it on island for, for concrete. So we're actually pretty lucky that way. It's still expensive, but it's not, not as expensive as it could be because it's brought over in such bulk amounts. Okay, okay. Well, that's, that's good to hear. You mentioned uh, before, three holes to go. Um, what's the timeline for getting the golf course really to the finish line? I know you're starting to host limited preview play, I think towards the tail end of March. So is the goal to get fully open later in 2023? Yes, we'll be, we'll be ready, uh, later this summer. Uh, however, the grand opening will be December 1st. So that's the start of the high season in the Caribbean. And so that's where we're going to have the, the true grand opening. That we'll we'll have eighteen holes ready to play sometime later this summer. Okay, so next question: What's your favorite hole on the golf course? And kind of a follow up to that, 
December in the Caribbean sounds like a great idea for uh, for for me and my team to come and come and visit. So, if we're coming, how many balls do we need to bring? It, it looks like there's a lot of ocean holes out there that we could donate some uh, donate some hardware to. So, what's your favorite hole? And you know how how playable is it versus how much challenge is there? I mean, obviously, Core Crenshaw do a good job of creating a really nice balance um, for for players with different skill sets. But what's that look like? Yeah, well, 15 through 18 all require shots over the ocean. So it's, it's pretty, uh, you'll need to bring at least a dozen balls, I would say. Uh, there are two back-to-back par, -back par threes, hole 16 and hole 17. Hole 16 is probably my favorite hole, but there's a very special tee on 17 that we just built. It's a little bit away from the other tees. It sits up quite a bit higher in a, on this small, small point. And from up there, that hole is amazing. It's a par three, and that view from up there is like nothing else. It's it's incredible. So those are my two favorite holes. I definitely say, uh, you know, bring bring a dozen golf balls because it, it will get windy at, at certain times of the year and on certain holes. And in terms of playability, you know, Bill Core talks about this a lot. Uh, as bad as COVID was. It actually gave his design associate, Keith Reb, who was here for something like 270 straight days, more time to kind of broaden, to do some massive, to do broaden the holes a little bit, to make it even more playable, a little bit more turf areas. And so in, in one way, COVID was good for that to me. It helped us make the course even more playable. Well, it looks incredible uh, for those interested in seeing the course that you know they can't maybe get there uh in december of uh, 2023 i'd strongly recommend following uh cabot st lucia on instagram uh obviously give you a follow you you post a fair amount on instagram at uh ncu turf um and let's not at forget ncsu ncsu yeah, NC turf yeah north carolina state university turf. yeah there you go <laughs> and and of course we can't forget to uh to give pinky a follow at pinky underscore uh, the Giorgio. Any anywhere else people can follow you, Damon, and see uh, see the awesome progress you guys are making at the course. No, that's it. Just Pinky with an I. So P I N K yeah P I N K I underscore the Giorgio, and then like I said, N C S U Turf. Uh, the Cabot Saint Lucia. The Saint is actually spelled out, so it's uh, S A I N T. So Cabot Saint Lucia. So those are all great great places to find us. The Cabot marketing team does a wonderful job posting and putting videos and photos out, which is really cool. And it's it's exciting to to share with everybody, and, and I can't wait for you guys to come down. Looks awesome. Again, thanks so much for uh, for speaking with me today. It's been really cool, and best of luck with the the last bit of growing. Thanks, Adam. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the USGA Green Section podcast. Be sure to subscribe, listen, and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also keep up with the latest content on Twitter and by subscribing to the Green Section Record, our digital publication that's published twice a month.